for our last scripture reading for the evening as we'll also consider it uh, for a little bit together. Uh, We're going to read from Matthew 12, verses 38 to 41. And this is a text that comes well before what we've already read, well before Jesus was arrested, well before he even entered Jerusalem. Matthew 12, 38 to 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. We're grateful, God, that we can pray to you, knowing you hear us, that you welcome us, that you've gathered us, that you have sent your son to give himself to pay the penalty we owe, to redeem us, to love us, to forgive us, to give us new life. We pray that you'd speak to all of us tonight from your word, touching our hearts, shaping our minds and our hearts to truth, to goodness, and to what it is that you would have us here tonight. We pray that you'd guide my mouth and my heart along the way as well. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So well before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, well before he goes to the cross, well before he's arrested, it's clear that he knows that he accepts, and that he's committed to what's about to happen to him once he gets to Jerusalem. That is, that he's headed towards death. And here in Matthew 12, he speaks of the sign of Jonah. And here Jesus is teaching and he's foretelling what's going to happen to him on what we call Good Friday. That Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is going to be tortured, killed, that he's going to enter into and experience Real death. Similar to Jonah, who was cast into the deep waters, into certain death, Jesus is going to emerge from the grave, victorious over death. And so we're here, and we read a heavy text, and and we know that Good Friday is solemn, and rightfully so. We reflect on the broken body, on the suffering, on the killing of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We mourn that he suffered at all, let alone that he suffered for us. This is heavy, and it's personal, and it brings us low. It brings us to mourning as we realize the enormous cost that it took for God to save us. I used to live in Manila, 
And where I lived in Manila, not far away, there was a, a meticulously kept World War II cemetery. And, and in this cemetery, there was, I think, around 17,000 uh, American and Filipino soldiers who had died and were buried as a result of that war. And so you go to the cemetery, and, and surrounding you, as you stand in the middle, are thousands upon thousands of white crosses and, and Jewish stars indicating that a soldier is buried there, row after row. And this stands just right, right interrupting the city. This busy city of, of 13, 14 million people is interrupted by this quiet place. It's interrupted with this reminder. And so when the Amer my American friends or guests came to town, I'd often take them there because it was somewhere meaningful for them to visit. We don't have very many places like that here since that war wasn't fought here. And it was a time to remember the great cost of the freedom that we have and the freedoms we enjoy. Like Good Friday, that cemetery was a place for mourning and quietness and reflection. But then after visiting, you could walk right across the street and go get a donut at the Krispy Kreme. And likewise, Good, Good Friday is solemn and it involves and it should involve our grieving over what happened to Jesus in our place. What Jesus did on Good Friday. What he purchased for us knowing that the wages of sin is death. The wages of our sin is death. And we know that death and suffering permeate the world around us. We try to hide, and we try not to think about these things because they're downers, right? If we have that privilege. But they're a reality, and we're all headed to death nonetheless. We can't escape it. Maybe you're a fan, or you were a fan, I should say, of, of Ichiro, or Manu, or Dwayne Wade, or Kobe, once spry young men. But these young men get older. They no longer can play the way they did. They no longer can play at all. Maybe you watch the memorial slideshows at your favorite awards show each year and see who's passed away. Death is a reality that we face. Suffering is also a reality that we face, and, and you've seen it. You've seen it as you, you visited or, or you work even in hospitals, as you visited orphanages or slums, uh, as you visited homes, or you, you're a caseworker and you know what's happening in other people's lives. Maybe you heard of the stories of abuse at the Valued Conference, or maybe you just watched the news, but, but our world that surrounds us is full of, of things of suffering that are heartbreaking, things that are maddening to us. Perhaps, probably, like me, you've stood at a graveside and cried as someone you dearly love is buried. As that is final, these things are real. But tonight, as, as we consider Jesus and the sign of Jonah, he is the only lasting remedy for these things. And that's what I want you to see. And so while Good Friday is solemn for us, we know the outcome. Many of you have already bought your Easter baskets or your Easter clothes. Um, 
or your groceries for a big meal. We know Amy and Brooke have been going around, going above and beyond as they've planned and prepared for our, our church Easter celebration and our egg hunt, as our, and we have, we're having a brunch on Sunday morning. Please join us for that at, at 9 a.m. But they've been working hard on this because we know that Easter is coming. We know that Good Friday is not the end. We know that Jesus' death is not the end. And so if you've waited to buy your candy, it's because you're cheap like me or or you've procrastinated. It's not because you're waiting to see what's going to happen still. The verdict, the history is in place. We know what Jesus has done. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to see that he's even better than Jonah. And Jesus emerges from the deep, from the grave, in order to deliver those who have faith in him. And so we're going to look quickly at at the sign that's demanded, and then we're going to look quickly at the sign of Jonah and what that means. Then we'll look at and consider that this is a sign that's worth believing. So in Matthew 12, it's talking about um, what's going to happen on Good Friday And on Easter, we read, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, and they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them and says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. We all are familiar with the concept of evidence. We all seek evidence in things that we do every day. Maybe you're trying to diagnose a problem or a disease. Maybe you're you're trying to select a person for a responsibility. Maybe you're, you're trying to decide, decide if a person that you know is, is trustworthy or if something that they've claimed is believable and true. Evidence is something that's a part of everyday life. And so the scribes and Pharisees, they're asking Jesus for evidence, something that will authenticate his claims and prove them to be true. And so at first this seems maybe somewhat harmless. It may seem an innocent and an honest inquiry, But that's not the case. If we look back at what's just happened in the story, Jesus has been mobbed by flocks because they've seen him do a few miraculous signs. A short list of what he's just done includes that he's healed a leper, healed a paralyzed servant, he's healed Peter's mother-in-law, he calmed a storm with his words, he healed two men with demons, he healed another paralytic, He brought to life a dead girl. He healed a bleeding woman. He gave sight to two blind men. He gave gave speech to a mute man. He healed a man with a withered hand. And then he healed a man who was blind, mute, and demon-oppressed. So never mind all these things that have just happened that they've seen and heard. That they actually used in the passage just before to accuse Jesus of demonic activity. Why are they asking him for another sign? When is enough evidence enough evidence? What will it take to convince them? But all these miracles haven't changed their thought, their position. They demand a sign, although they've already seen and heard of the things Jesus has done. And Jesus indicates that this is because they are determined not to believe no matter what they see. And so he calls them a wicked adulterous generation. He calls them the same name that ancient Israel was called when they were idolatrous. They're not serving, these Pharisees aren't serving pagan idols like ancient Israel, but they're not honest in their consideration of evidence, and they refuse to believe. 
what kind of king, what kind of Messiah was it that they expected? Or maybe, maybe the better question is, what kind of king or Messiah was it that they would accept? Historically, at this time, they're under Roman rule. They'd lost the promised land, uh, which God had promised to them under the condition that they obey. And they're, for their disobedience, they were punished. They lost their sovereignty as a nation. And this, by the way, is not how God deals with America now, uh, but it was how he dealt with ancient Israel, the chosen nation. Um, they'd lost their place. And so here, what comes to surface is that, was it God that Israel wanted at this point? Was it God that these Pharisees were seeking? Or was it just their nation? Was it their comforts, their blessings, their place of honor amongst others? And Jesus knows their hearts, and, and God knows our hearts. He knew that one more sign on demand wasn't going to satisfy them. It wasn't the problem. The problem was their disbelief and their sinful selfishness. And so in that moment, he doesn't give them a sign on demand. He says, no sign will be given. And instead, he says, you will see the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so we look now and ask next, what, what is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about? And all you kids, you guys know Jonah, right? You guys know the story of Jonah. What happened? God asked him to go to Nineveh. So, so Jonah's here. Jonah's here. God asked him to go to Nineveh, which is 600 miles that way. That's like going all the way to Albuquerque or, or Salt Lake City. And what, is, what does Jonah do? He hops on a boat. He hops on the ocean and heads to Hawaii. He goes the opposite direction. And then he's thrown off the boat in the middle of a storm because they find out the reason for the storm is that God is angry with with Jonah for disobeying. He's thrown off the boat and then what? Eaten by a giant fish, a giant sea monster fish. Yeah, that's right. And then what? After three days and three nights, what happens? He's vomited back up out of the belly of the fish. Jonah resurfaces after three nights and three, three days and three nights of of them thinking he's dead. Everyone thinks he's dead. The boat had to return to shore after the storm. So then Jonah eventually goes the 600 miles to Nineveh, which is all on land. So it would have taken him a while to get there. The message, the news of what happened to Jonah would have got to Nineveh probably before he did. And Nineveh, if you, if you didn't know, the name Nineveh means fish town. This is a town whose god, they worship a fish god. And so for Jonah to be spit up by a fish and delivered out of death by a fish into them, is meaningful to them. When he got there, did Jonah perform any miraculous signs? The question is no. Jonah was the sign. So when when Jesus says the sign of Jonah, he's not saying some miracle that Jonah performed. He's saying Jonah, 
The sign is Jonah. The sign was Jonah. Jonah himself being alive after what happened was the sign. And seeing Jonah alive compelled the Ninevites from the peasants to the king, from the least to the greatest, to repent from their wickedness. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, I am the sign. I will be in the grave three days, three nights. This is what the sign of Jonah is. And we shouldn't be so surprised. Maybe a few months back, you'll remember we talked about uh, fishers of men and what it meant to, for God to, to reach down into the water because the water in the ancient world was the place of death. It was the place of chaos. It was darkness. They didn't have underwater cameras and, and lights that they could go and explore. It was the place of death. And so when Jesus compares himself to Jonah, he's, he's, he's talking about his death, right? He's talking about that very clearly, three days and three nights in the earth. And so Jesus emerges on the third day. And this this is important. After three days and three nights, Jesus is alive again. Now, some of you kids are probably really smart. Um, and maybe... Maybe you're asking the same kind of question I asked. So if Jesus died on Friday, that's Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and then he's raised on Sunday morning, that's, that's three days and two nights, right? Not three days and three nights, right? But there's, lots of, there's, there's a couple good, really good explanations of this, and it's not something we should be distracted by. But first we should know that when, when Jesus uses that phrase, that was an old phrase that they used in their culture, three days and three nights really just meant any part of three days. And then it's also important for us, and, and I can talk, if you're interested, I can talk to you more about this after the service, that, that if, if Jesus' resurrection happened in the year 30 AD, which some scholars believe that's the year, uh, he actually could have been crucified on Thursday, which would have made three days and three nights actually the perfect description. Uh, we don't know for sure that that's the case, but but we shouldn't be distracted that he said three days and three nights. You can have good confidence that what he said was perfectly true. And so when he said he was going to go down into death, this is what we confess as, as Christians, and this is what we're going to confess here in a little bit when we, conf- when we read and, and say together the Apostles' Creed, that after, was Je- after Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended into hell. You guys remember that when we read that? What does that mean? Uh, And it's important that in the original uh, uh, Apostles' Creed, that means that Jesus goes to the place of the dead, not the place of torture. And so so the original Apostles' Creed says uh, he went down to, to Hades. Hades is the place where dead souls are, Gehenna was the place where tortured souls were. And so, and so when we say Jesus uh, descended into hell, we mean he descended to the place of death where his, his body was in the grave, but his soul was with God in heaven as, as the, as, just as he promised to the thief on the cross that he would be in paradise with him. So he was. His body was in the grave and his soul was in paradise 
but he was in the state of death, a state that a perfect, sinless God did not deserve to be in. And he did this in our place as our substitute. Unlike the prophet Jonah, who initially ran away, Jesus, the Son of God, knew ahead of time. He was willing, and he ran towards God's mission, even though he knew full well what it meant for him, which was death. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that, for as a man came by death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And we need this deliverance. Death is real. Sin and suffering are real. The world around us is broken, it's corrupt and unjust, and so we still die and we still experience death. But God's word, the Bible, repeatedly promises us that we'll be made alive again, restored to life, a life without sin, without any suffering, when Jesus finally returns. Because he has victory over the grave. He has won victory over the grave for his people. And in light of of the promises and the evidence tonight, I want to urge you all that the sign of Jesus is worth believing. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. These Pharisees, they won't believe. Not yet, at least. Their pursuit is for immediate self-interest. It's not truly and honestly for God, for what is true, or for what is good. Things in Israel aren't really that great, but for the Pharisees, they have some power, they have some prestige, in their political and religious system. And that's, that's good enough for them. They're going to guard that. They're going to keep it. They're not going to let Jesus take that away. So they say, show us power and strength, and then we'll follow you. But Jesus is showing them that he didn't, he didn't come for that reason. He, he came to deal with bigger things than, than the nation of Israel and its ambitions. He says, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to enter death and defeat it. Bringing you the gift of eternal paradise and peace to all nations. And so the sign of Jesus, which is dying and rising from the grave, is greater than the sign of Jonah. It's a sign that must be believed. Jesus rose from the dead. And that's not a fairy tale. It's not a meaningful antique tradition. But it's real history, and it really happened. The Ninevites from Jonah received a lesser sign, and they repented, and God saved them. He spared them from judgment. And we now have an even greater sign and much greater evidences. We know far more than Nineveh or the Jewish leaders ever did. The resurrection of Jesus is in the past. We know Easter Sunday is coming. We've received and we have the New Testament messages 
from eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses that saw Jesus' death and resurrection. Eyewitnesses who saw him appear again. Eyewitnesses who stuck to their testimony even when it meant death. They weren't going to back down and say that they made it all up. Even now we've seen changed lives and changed hearts around us that are so improbable. We have so many good evidences in Jesus. And what's more, in Jesus we have more than just a sign, more than just true history, but in Jesus, I hope you'll see that we have a picture of what's good and of what's worthy of being followed. Jesus saves even sinners like us. He saves us from our consequences, from our hurts, from our ailments, from our hopelessness, from our mortality. Jesus is the one, the only one who embodies perfectly what it is to be good, kind, and just. In God, we have a Father who gives an inheritance, eternal life, but not one that you have to earn, one that he provides for you. As we look at the Pharisees and the world, and even at ourselves, I want you to see that Jesus leads us to a better way. It's not a way of stockpiling and scratching and clawing to serve ourselves at the expense of others or the neglect of others. But Jesus is teaching and he's exemplifying to us loving all your neighbors and your enemies as yourself. And he can be yours. He offers himself to you if you would simply believe him. And seek to turn from your sin. And so, for all, for all you economists and philosophers out here, you can write it down. You've just heard a sermon from Adam Smith preaching against a life and a society based on self-interest. Jesus doesn't come to teach self-interest. So ultimately, if you're here tonight, You've heard. You should know. We want you to know the stakes are high. If you weren't sure of what you think of Jesus before tonight, look at his promises, his evidences, his message, his goodness, his victory over death. This is history. And you're going to have to decide to put your faith in Jesus or not. And to not do so is a big risk. It's risking that condemnation that Jesus talked about. Outside of Jesus, there's not another religious system. There's not a better way, another reliable promise that good is going to ultimately prevail and that evil, pain, and death will be conquered forever. But death is coming. Pain and suffering are here. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus said that he would, and he did suffer, die, was buried, and raised to life on the third day. And so even for those of, those of you who are believing in following Jesus, the question stands day after day. Will we believe in him? Will we cling to him when times are terrible? 
when times are good or when times are just okay in the status quo, day after day? Will he be enough? Or will you still be stockpiling and clamoring in your heart for more and more like the Pharisees did? Both Jonah and Jesus went into the deep. Both Jonah and Jesus were delivered from death. And the sign, the promise from Jesus are far greater. The evidences are far greater. It was in your place that Jesus went to the cross to suffer, to enter death, and to emerge again from the deep, conquering the grave. And he did this to secure for you a permanent freedom. Freedom that can never be taken away. Then on the third day he rose again. And these are our signs. This is our evidence that what he taught and what he offered. That the promise of forgiveness, the promise of eternal life and peace are true. This is the evidence of the truth, of the promise. That he'll return again. Raise his people to life and defeat all evil for all time and wipe away every tear from your eye. As the prophet Isaiah said, he will swallow up death. And as the apostle Paul wrote, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We are so undeserving, O oh God, of the forgiveness that you offer, of the penalty that Jesus paid for us. And we mourn that he paid that price. We mourn that he paid it in our place. And we rejoice to be found in him, to be united with him, to be his people. And we ask that you'd strengthen our faith, Day by day, we ask that you would align our lives and our hearts more and more to Jesus and his good ways. We ask that you would use our lives and our words to proclaim his goodness to those around us, that they too might find a reliable hope, a reliable promise in Jesus. We're grateful that we can look to you And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.